Yay nay oh man. Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay, or Ma, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And once again, this is a very late show, but I do have a legitimate excuse this week. I had my booster jab this week, so that took up an entire day because the Bath race course where I needed to go and get it is very inaccessible to somebody who doesn't drive, weirdly. And then the day after that, I needed to go all the way over to Clifton in Bristol in order to have my annual glaucoma check. So, yeah, that was basically a waste of time because I'm technically high risk for glaucoma, but that is the shortest actual exam of my eyes I've ever had. But anyway, that also took up an entire day, so I'm now very late in the week and recording about not a great deal of films, but I do have a lot to talk about with a couple of these films. So, at the cinemas, I will be sharing my reviews of the latest Disney film Encanto, Ridley Scott's latest film this year, The House of Gucci, the extraordinary award-winning Romanian film Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn, and I've realised that the two Netflix films I found time to watch this week are weirdly connected, and I didn't set out to do this, but both of them are hybrid documentaries which distinctly blur the lines between documentary film and narrative feature. From Mexico, we have a cop movie, and from America, we have the rather harrowing documentary Procession. And those are the two films I managed to watch on Netflix this week. And before I go any further, a couple of housekeeping statements to make. Eagle eared listeners, I mean, if you actually care about this will have noticed that one of the films I announced last episode that I was intending to watch I didn't actually get to. The cinematic film Pirates I wasn't able to see. The plan was that I would go over to Bristol one day and watch Pirates in the afternoon before watching Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn in the evening. But I got caught in such a large traffic jam all the way into Bath and then between Bath and Bristol that I was too late for Pirates. And honestly, I wasn't so interested in it that I wanted to make another specific trip to Bristol in order to watch it, particularly when I had those two medical appointments. So I didn't manage to get to Pirates. And the other statement I want to make is that a cop movie, this hybrid documentary from Mexico on Netflix, 
the specifics of that film have been kept out of the publicity and out of the marketing. But it is one of those situations where in order to properly talk about it and properly review it, I will need to arguably spoil certain things. I will be talking about the structure of a cop movie and the specific ways in which it blurs the lines between fiction and reality. I mean, I knew going in that it was a hybrid documentary, but I didn't know how it was until about halfway through the film. And I do feel I need to talk about that in order to review a cop movie. So, fair warning, if you want to go into that cold, it is available on Netflix. And for me, I think it was a solid meh. But if you do want to hear in detail the specific structure of a cop movie, I will be going into that in the course of my review, and arguably that could be seen as a spoiler. So fair warning on that. So, with reviews of Encanto, The House of Gucci, Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn, A Cop Movie, and Procession, let's get on with today's reviews. Big Screen Encanto is the latest Disney animated feature, and in common with many films, many animated films that Disney has released over the last few years, in the closing credits there are a couple of things. There are a long list of academics who were consulted to make sure they were culturally sensitive to the regions they were setting their stories in and the tales they were telling. And also Alan Tudyk is in the cast, even though he is not culturally appropriate. This film is set in Colombia and the entire cast, with the exception of Alan Tudyk, has Latinx backgrounds. But Alan Tudyk has now been in nine straight Disney animated features. Starting with Wreck-It Ralph in 2012, Alan Tudyk's been in all of them. And when it's not culturally appropriate, he just voices an animal. In Moana, he voiced a chicken. In Raya and the Last Dragon, he voiced that armadillo pill bug thing. And here in Encanto, he voices a toucan. At this point, it's just an in-joke that Alan Tudyk is in every single Disney animated feature. But it's always nice to see him. And it's always nice to see the fact that Disney maintains its policy of not only setting its stories in different cultures and different parts of the world, but also casting appropriate voice actors. See, you can do it, Kubo and the Two Strings. This tale is set in Colombia, and we are following the fortunes of the family Madrigal, who live in a beautiful casa in the high mountains of Colombia, which has magical properties. In the past, the matriarch of this family, the abuela, voiced by Maria Cecilia Botero, who is a long-standing television actress in Colombia, she had to flee her home 
and found sanctuary and safety in this little valley high up in the mountains with magic properties. A particular candle has been gifted to the family, a miracle in this candle has been gifted to the family, and it protects the valley, it protects the people who live there, and it gives all the members of the Madrigal family special powers. Except one. Mirabelle, voiced by Stephanie Beatriz from Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and a tiny role in In the Heights, plays the only member of this family who does not have special powers. Her older sisters, one is incredibly strong and one is incredibly perfect and beautiful. Her mother can cure people with her cooking. Her aunt can affect the weather. And her three cousins... One has extraordinarily powerful hearing, one can shapeshift into any person he meets, and the youngest is just about to be given his powers at the start of the film. But since the last time this ceremony happened where powers are given when you come of age is about eight or nine years old, everybody is concerned, is, is the magic going away? When Mirabel didn't get any powers, is the magic going? Will her baby cousin, not get any powers either, which is something the wider community and Mirabelle herself is worried about. Thankfully for the family, and disappointingly for Mirabelle, her baby cousin is given the power to talk to animals, but at the ceremony, Mirabelle starts seeing cracks appearing in this magic house. She tells her family, look, something's wrong, the magic is dying, but the abuela, the matriarch of this family, insists that nothing is wrong and dismisses her concerns out of hand. So hurt by this and determined to do something to contribute to the family, since she doesn't have any actual powers, she decides to pursue her missing uncle, and one of the recurring songs in this film is We Don't Talk About Bruno. So she goes out to try and find Uncle Bruno and try and find out what's happening to the magic and whether or not it is dying. So can this plucky, powerless woman in a family full of superheroes, essentially, work out what's going on and save the magic for future generations of the Madrigal family. I've said recently that Disney animated films know exactly what they're doing, know exactly what buttons they're pushing. They're almost going on autopilot now, but it's such a good autopilot that you don't necessarily notice it anymore. But in my opinion, Encanto is different. The way I read the film, there is some genuine darkness at the centre of this film. There's some genuine emotional familial trauma which is being dealt with here in a rather direct and abrupt way. You can argue, and I think it's a strong argument, that Stephanie Beatriz is living in an emotionally abusive household. Her grandmother, Maria Cecilia Botero, 
has a very utilitarian attitude to her family. If you don't have powers, if you are not useful to the family, you don't matter. And in myriad subtle ways, Maria Cecilia Patero is constantly telling her second youngest grandchild, Stephanie Beatriz, you don't have powers, you're not worth bothering with. We need to protect the family, we need to protect the casa at any cost. And because this subtle background microaggression attitude that the rest of her family has, Stephanie Beatrice is always trying too hard, and that in turn makes her make mistakes. And in certain situations, she makes things worse. So she is being dismissed and excluded from her family, from her large loving family, because she doesn't have powers. Her mother still loves her and still tries to include her. Her perfect sister, you know, the pretty one ignores her completely and her strong older sister is just so busy doing all the important stuff around the village that she doesn't have time for her sister. So Mirabelle, Stephanie Beatriz, is completely excluded from this family and is there's some genuine emotional baggage here, some emotional trauma. And speaking of the strong older sister, this brings me on to one of the other aspects of this Disney film, which is somewhat common over recent years. And that is the fact that Lin-Manuel Miranda provides original songs for this film. There is every chance that there will be five nominees for Best Original Song at next year's Oscars, and three of them will be by Lin-Manuel Miranda for three different films. It's unlikely, but there's a chance that he will get nominated for songs from Vivo, In the Heights, and Encanto. Lin-Manuel Miranda's just everywhere, and the opening track of Encanto is the typical Lin-Manuel Miranda opening track, introducing all the characters in a really inventive, kind of funny way. I mean, there's a refrain where, you know, there's little kids who are kind of the Greek chorus of this. And because it's Colombia, one of these sort of like eight, nine-year-old kids is constantly drinking coffee and is very jittery, and, you know, Maybe you shouldn't be drinking that. Maybe that's for adults. And is constantly having his coffee cup taken away from him, which I think was cute. But these kids saying, "Yeah, all right, what's your power, Mirabelle? And this is a refrain constantly throughout the first song, which establishes the fact that all of her family are powered and she isn't. And that's right from the start of the film. I mean, that's what Lin-Manuel Miranda always, always does. In the Heights, Vivo have very similar opening tracks, introducing the entire cast of characters. And this is a Lin-Manuel Miranda-style soundtrack. But honestly, I don't think this is his best work. I actually think that Vivo, which in many ways is a vastly inferior film to this, as far as the songs go, I think Vivo was better. 
There's only one track in this entire movie which really stands out to me, and that is the one which is sung by the strong older sister, voiced by Jessica Darrow. Now, in her investigations, you know, there's something wrong with the house, although there might be something wrong with the house. Mirabelle goes to all her members of her family saying, you know, what, what do you think? Is there anything wrong with you? And asking that question breaks open the barriers. And the older sister, Louisa, voiced by Jessica Darrow, basically sings this song saying, I'm the strong one. There's too much pressure. And I'm now going to play you a clip from that particular song, which honestly I think is the only one which is any good in this entire film. So this is Surface Pressure from Encanto, sung by Jessica Darrow. I'm the strong one. I'm not nervous. I'm as tough as the crust of the earth is. I move mountains, I move churches, and I glow cause I know what my worth is. I don't ask how hard the work is. Got a rough and destructible surface. Diamonds and platinum, I find them, I flatten them. I take what I'm handed, I break what's demanded. But under the surface, I feel berserk as a tightrope walker in a three ring circus. Under the surface, was Hercules ever like yo? I don't wanna fight Cerberus. Under the surface, I'm pretty sure I'm worthless if I can be of service. A floor crack, the straw in the stack. I really do like the different directions that song goes in, and I have to admire Lin-Manuel Miranda for rhyming circus and Cerberus, particularly in a movie which is set in Colombia. But yeah, that is really the only memorable or hummable track in the entire film, as far as I'm concerned. So this is not Lin-Manuel Miranda's best work, but subpar Lin-Manuel Miranda still beats the pants off most songwriters out there. And it does build into the overall themes of this film. Because, as you would expect, I mean, Mirabelle has a happy ending. I mean, she is, you know, the every girl, the audience surrogate who finds her own direction, finds her own path. and. You can make a strong argument, and I'm pretty sure this is what the film wants us to think, that the power that Stephanie Beatrice has is that she has no powers. She is both emotionally and, to some degree, physically an outsider to this family, so she can observe all the things which are going on. I mean, talking to her older strong sister saying, you know, is there anything wrong with you? And her older sister saying, I take too much on myself, literally and emotionally. And then her perfect sister, the one who is so pretty that flowers grow everywhere she goes. That constant need to be 
perfect is her issue. And saying, you know, I'm not actually happy being perfect. I mean, there's an enormous amount of pressure being perfect the whole time is really powerful stuff. And observing from the outside, you know, hang on, maybe emotionally your needs are not being supported because you need to be powered. You need to be the centre of this community. The, the house, the magic needs to be protected at all costs. That is far too much pressure to put on everybody else. So there are two songs from each of the other sisters, you know, saying, these are my issues. This is what living this family has done to me. And part of me wishes that Stephanie Beatrice's aunt and cousins were also involved in this. Because her aunt can affect the weather. So when she's in a bad mood, there's a little rain cloud which follows her around. So there is a constant expectation that her aunt will be in a good mood and therefore not affect the weather. And can you imagine the pressure that you would feel to need to be happy all the time and have a visible representation of whether you are happy all the time? And several times throughout the course of this film, they say to her Aunt Pepper, oh, you've got a rain cloud, you cheer up. I mean, that's just not the way that emotion works. And then her other cousin, the oldest cousin, she can hear everything. So therefore, there are no secrets from her. She knows everybody's business. She knows everybody's secrets. But can and should she share that? And the middle cousin can shapeshift, can change his appearance to mimic anybody else in the family and the other villagers who which have built up around this casa. So does he have an identity of his own? I mean, all of these are really, really fascinating. And if we'd had time, which we honestly don't, I might have liked songs from their point of view as well. But ultimately, I think this brings to the fore my opinion of this film, that this is actually a film about emotional abuse. This is a film about the matriarch of this family, Maria Cecilia Botero, being so cautious about protecting the miracle, protecting the magic, that all other concerns get pushed to the side. And the emotional needs, the emotional support which the rest of the family is craving is just not there. And I think that's actually a fascinating place to go. I think there's some adult, pretty dark themes in this film, which are very interesting to explore. And yes, eventually there is uh, a moment of reconciliation towards the end, and Maria Cecilia Batera says, oh no, I've, I've destroyed my family. But that's right at the end, and I don't think it has quite the impact. I think even by the end of the film, there's still an undercurrent of unsettled melancholy at the centre of this. And that's actually, I think, pretty fascinating to explore. 
Weirdly, I think this family-friendly Disney animated film Encanto would make a fascinating double bill with the Costa Rican film I saw at the Film Bath Festival, Clara Sola. I think that Clara Sola is going to be released in spring next year, and when it comes out, I do recommend it. I did really, really like Clara Sola. But that is a two, a film set in a Latin American country where a woman is being repressed by her family and by societal expectations until she finds an unusual way to break out. And yeah, Clara Sola and Encanto in some ways are the same film, which is a really, really weird thing to say. But when you do get a chance to see Clara Sola, do think about that. I, I think it, it's an interesting contrast and comparison. So yeah, I, I think Encanto works as a family-friendly Disney movie romp. The songs are good but not great from Lin-Manuel Miranda, and the themes are surprisingly dark, and the emotions are surprisingly dark. But any way you slice it, I think Encanto is an excellent film. It's currently available in cinemas, and I think within a couple of weeks it will be ending up on Disney+. Plus. But however you see it, I do thoroughly recommend Encanto, and for me it is a yay. And I should also mention that, as is common with Disney films and Pixar films, there is a short attached to Encanto which is entitled Far From The Tree, and that is really, really good. It's been done in the 2.5D style that the animated film Klaus was done, in that it's basically a 2D cell-style animated look, but it's been added on with 3D lighting effects, which gives it a really, really unusual look. And it actually brought to mind what I personally think is the best Disney or Pixar short they've released recently, Piper. But Far From The Tree has a similar theme of a raccoon and its baby going from the forest to a beach in order to search for shellfish, you know, hunt for, for food. And the parent is far too cautious about the dangers of the beach, which are not listened to by the enthusiastic uh, kit, I think is a baby raccoon. But yeah, the dark consequences for not listening to your elders and then the cycle continuing. So, yeah, Far From The Tree is an excellent short. I'm assuming that too will end up on Disney Plus at some point, and if you have a chance to see that, I do also recommend Far From The Tree. And I would not be at all surprised if that won Best Animated Short at the Oscars next year, because that's the one that everybody will have seen. So, yeah, that's probably going to win an Oscar, and... I think it will probably deserve it. I mean, not that I've seen all the contenders, but yeah, Far From The Tree is very, very good. 
The next major release out this week is House of Gucci. The latest film directed by Ridley Scott, the second in two months released by Ridley Scott, both starring Adam Driver. And this tells the extraordinary story of Gucci in the early to mid 80s and how it went from a luxurious prestige family business fashion house to the gigantic fashion corporation which it currently is and how there were murders along the way. We start in 1978 where working class woman Patrizia Reggiani, played by Lady Gaga, randomly meets Maurizio Gucci, played by Adam Driver. And once she hears the name Gucci, she makes it her mission to inveigle her way into the life of Maurizio Gucci and marry him and enter into one of the wealthiest fashion houses in the world, which she eventually succeeds and enters the House of Gucci, which at the time period we are dealing with, the shareholders of the Gucci empire are brothers Al Pacino, who runs the business and is something of a corporate shark, and the much more conservative failed actor in increasingly failing health, played by Jeremy Irons. So Jeremy Irons and Al Pacino basically hold all the shares. Al Pacino's son is played by Jared Leto, who is a wannabe designer, but is basically a complete idiot whose ideas will never amount to anything. And Jeremy Irons' son is Maurizio Gucci, who initially is trained to be a lawyer and wants very, very little to do with his famous family name. But with the mildly Lady Macbeth-style whispering in the ear from Lady Gaga, Maurizio Gucci becomes more and more a part of the Gucci empire, going to New York to start working with his uncle Al Pacino and being groomed to take over the family business over his idiot cousin, Jared Leto. But be careful what you wish for, and Lady Gaga essentially creates a monster. From this shy and naive law student she initially meets to the ruthless businessman that Adam Driver eventually turns into, and also the ruthless nature of his personal life. And as the marriage between Lady Gaga and Adam Driver starts deteriorating, jealousies start coming to the fore, entitlement starts coming to the fore, and with the influence of a TV psychic, played by Salma Hayek, eventually dark dealings happen in the House of Gucci. This is one of those stories which is too good to be true. 
all of this did really happen, but you kind of expect it to be part of a narrative story. I mean, it's just too perfect. The Machiavellian backstage dealings, the backstabbings, the betrayals of family members, the resorting to violence and murder, potentially, in this story. I mean, it's all there. It's all too good to be true. Yet it happened, and it's an extraordinary story. I mean, it kind of makes me wonder why hasn't this story been done already? It's just too perfect, and it's true. But it's happened now, and I think this is an excellent, excellent film. Yet again, Lady Gaga proves that she is actually an excellent actress. She is tipped to get an Oscar nomination for Best Actress for this, and I think she would be thoroughly deserving of it. I mean, personally speaking, I think she's better than Kristen Stewart, who seems to be the favourite at the moment for Spencer. I would much rather Lady Gaga got an Oscar for this over Kristen Stewart. The ambitious, somewhat manipulative, character that we have here is really interesting to explore and examine i mean at a party which it's never fully confirmed but it seems that this working class girl who works for her dad's trucking company it seems that she's crashed this party and she meets this shy and naive student Maurizio Gucci and instantly you can see the Lyra signs in her eyes. She then makes a concerted effort to connect with Maurizio Gucci, to get her way into his affections, into his life. And eventually they get married, and she becomes part of the House of Gucci, much to the chagrin of her father-in-law, Jeremy Iron who instantly sees her for what she probably is, which is a gold digger. But from the very first time we see Jeremy Irons, he's coughing. So we know that Jeremy Irons is not long for this world, and Lady Gaga just has to wait it out. And she gradually manipulates her way into the House of Gucci. She manipulates her husband into becoming a fuller member of the House of Gucci. I mean, as it is portrayed in the film, Maurizio Gucci would have been perfectly happy being disowned by the House of Gucci and working for Patrizia Reggiani's trucking company. He seems like a genuinely nice guy, and despite his famous name and his rich background, he gets along with all the truckers and the mechanics in Lady Gaga's truck yard. He seems like a genuinely nice guy, but that just isn't good enough for Lady Gaga. So she makes sure that Adam Driver reconnects with his uncle Al Pacino, makes sure they all go to New York and spend time in the flagship American store for Gucci, and gradually he starts moving up the corporate ladder, much to the annoyance of Jared Leto, who is Al Pacino's actual son but is a complete idiot. I mean, Jared Leto clearly 
took this role because he could overact horrendously and could have a lot of prosthetics in this jowly, balding man who looks absolutely nothing like Jared Leto. When I saw the first trailer for House of Gucci and saw this buffoonish character on screen, and then it came up at the end, Oscar winner Jared Leto, I thought, hang on, that's Jared Leto? Really? Oh, yeah, Jared Leto was clearly having a whale of a time. I mean, it's one of those situations where, yes, he is overacting horrendously, but the character he is portraying is an overdramatic, delusional loudmouth. So it kind of fits. But, yeah, it's sometimes feel that Jared Leto's in an entirely different movie. But anyway... Jared Leto is jealous of his cousins rising through the ranks of the House of Gucci and the close relationship he develops with Al Pacino. But as Lady Gaga continues whispering in the ear of her husband, saying, yo, you should be more powerful, you should get what's yours, the backstabbing starts, the betrayal starts, the thirst for power, the thirst for influence, starts building more and more in Adam Driver until it goes too far. And suddenly Adam Driver is this corporate raider who is perfectly willing to break up his marriage and dismiss the person who got him there. And I do say suddenly because the one relatively big criticism I can lay at House of Gucci is eventually the marriage between Lady Gaga and Adam Driver breaks down. And on screen, it kind of happens instantaneously. I mean, one scene, they're a tiny bit angry with each other because they misdeeds that they did in the past to get the power and influence they crave. They are coming back to haunt them, so they're a little bit angry with each other. And in the next scene, Adam Driver is completely ignoring Lady Gaga, is fighting for divorce, and is going off and sleeping with Camille Cotin. And that kind of happens instantaneously. I think a a tiny bit more build-up to the breakdown of this marriage would have been helpful. And then Lady Gaga just goes completely off the rails. She's phoning up constantly, leaving nasty voice messages. She's essentially stalking her husband. She's refusing to sign the divorce papers which are put in front of her. She is using their daughter as a pawn. She turns into the psychotic ex-wife that is so commonly portrayed in this kind of thriller, but it actually happened. And I think Lady Gaga plays it really, really well, because even right by the end when the really, really dark stuff happens, I do not know if she ever actually loved Adam Driver. The start of this relationship, Lady Gaga is clearly being manipulative, is clearly putting herself in the best position, you know, to bag herself for Gucci to get a rich husband. But the way she acts after that I mean, yes, she is overly ambitious. She is pushing her husband out of his comfort zone. I mean, he would be perfectly happy having a much smaller life. But Lady Gaga is constantly pushing him. And the way she reacts 
it looks like love. It looks like she is devastated that the love of her life has left her. But equally, it could be, I worked so hard for this. I came up from nothing. I got myself wealth. And I am going to do everything I possibly can. I'm going to fight tooth and nail to hold on to any little thing I can. Any little connection to the House of Gucci. I am determined to do that. So is it love or is it holding on for grim death to what you've achieved? We're never really sure. And her determination is also flavoured by the fact that time and time again, other members of the family dismissively say, you're not a Gucci, you're not one of us. You may now bear our name, but you are not one of us. So she is always, always considered an outsider. And that's going to build resentment regardless of anything else. So, yeah. I think this is a very cool film. One of the random thoughts that flitted through my mind as I was watching this, I'm assuming that all the clothes in this film are facsimiles of actual Gucci clothing. So I was kind of wondering, was this the easiest costume design gig ever or the hardest costume design gig ever? (laughs) That was a, a random thought that flitted through my mind. But I did like this film. I don't like it as much as The Last Duel. As things stand, it looks like if there is any Oscar love heading towards a Ridley Scott film this year, it will be to The House of Gucci rather than The Last Duel. And I think that's wrong. I think The Last Duel is an excellent film, an underrated film, which really didn't get enough love at the box office. I thought it was very, very good. Jodie Comer, in particular, was excellent in that film. And she, I think, deserves an Oscar nomination as things stand. Lady Gaga probably does as well, but it frustrates me that because of the pandemic, these two films have come out so close to each other that one is going to get drowned out, and it looks like that's going to be the last duel. But either way, I think The House of Gucci is a fascinating Machiavellian film. I mean, it's got all the backstabbing and internal politics of something like Game of Thrones, except it's a family business come corporation in the late 70s to early 90s. But yeah, it's, it's a good film. And for me, The House of Gucci, currently out in cinemas, is a very high Meh. The final cinematic film I want to talk about in this episode is the Romanian film Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn, which is the full title and is rather unwieldy and is somewhat in keeping with the pretentious attitude of the director of this film, Radu Jew. His last film was entitled I Do Not Care If We Go Down in History as Barbarians, which I will be coming back to later in this review. 
But this film, Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn, won the Golden Bear at the 2020 Berlin Film Festival. And in the past, Radu Jude has won a Silver Bear at Berlin for his film Afarim. And honestly, I wasn't the hugest fan of either of those films. But because this was an award winner, because Romania has submitted it to the International Film Oscar for next year, and because the premise actually looked kind of interesting anyway, I did make the effort to go over to Bristol and watch Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn, in which a teacher at a prestigious junior high school, played by Katia Pascariu, has a sex tape she made with her husband released onto the internet. And in the wake of this, and in the wake of her entire class of 12 and 13 year olds seeing this sex tape that is online, the parents of her class insist on holding a kind of a tribunal, basically a kangaroo court, insisting that this shameful woman not be allowed to teach their children anymore. And the absurdity of this is heightened by the fact that this was shot at the height of the pandemic. So everybody is wearing masks. Everybody is more or less keeping social distancing. And there are actually some gags about the lack of social distancing in certain places. But this kangaroo court of concerned parents is after the job of this respected and good teacher who happened to have a sex tape released online. This is a wild film. I'm not sure what I was actually expecting from this film, but I wasn't really expecting this. This is excessive. This has so many pertinent things to say. And the structure of this film is absolutely fascinating. It basically breaks down into three sections with a prologue and an epilogue. The prologue of this film is The Sex Tape, which is roughly three minutes long and does feature unsimulated sex. Now, the very first thing I did when I came back from watching Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn in Bristol is I tried to find a torrent of this film because this film has so much in it. It has such a density of content that I really wanted to get the details right. So I made sure I had a second opportunity to watch the film and make proper copious notes about what goes on in this film. And because I watched this for a second time, I can say that I'm pretty sure the actress Katya Pascariu didn't do as much in this sex tape as it might at first appear. Katya Pascariu was definitely completely naked 
and being fondled by an actor with an erection who is actually played by a Romanian porn star who goes by the name Stefan Steele. So, Cacio Pascari was definitely naked in the room with the naked and ready Stefan Steele. She then performs fellatio on what, at a second look, is almost certainly a lifelike dildo. And then, by the time actual penetration occurs, and it does occur, I'm pretty sure that's no longer Catcher Pascario. So, yeah, some very clever editing on this three-minute sex tape, which is actually kind of charming. I have not seen a homemade sex tape that bad for quite some time. I mean, in the modern era with HD cameras on everybody's phones, you can make some really, really high-quality homemade porn, and this is not it. It has a charming level of ineffectiveness. I mean, it's not erotic that much either. It's particularly because in the middle section when the blowjob is happening, they get interrupted by what sounds like Kachibuskaria's mother saying, you know, we need to get the little one to bed. It's got a down at heel charm, <laughs> if you can call a, a sex tape that. But yeah, it, it's it's not a very good sex tape, and it was entirely private until somebody leaked it online. And now people are after Catcher Pascario's job, which is completely unfair. So after this three-minute prologue of the sex tape, the first section of the film is Catcher Pascario walking around the streets of Bucharest, doing chores, you know, getting some groceries, buying a toy for her daughter, going to a pharmacy. But she is walking around the streets of Bucharest for 33 minutes. At the first glance, I was thinking, okay, she's walking home and talking on the phone to her husband and other people, you know, she goes and visits the headmistress of this middle school. And you know, I think it's, you know, it's just establishing this character before you know, we get to the actual meat of this film, which is you know, this kangaroo court. But then it goes on and on and on. And I started realising, oh, I see what Radu Jude is doing. He is showing through this walk through the streets of Romania, all the social and cultural influences which are being brought to bear on Romanian society. It turns into a complete cross-section of Romanian society in a really, really clever way, what I found a really, really clever way. I mean, she walks past a Romanian Orthodox church which has a gigantic road-building site in front of it. She walks past a gigantic billboard advertising a gym with a huge muscle-bound oiled guy. And equally, she walks past another billboard with an advert for what I think looks like a yoghurt, but it's a very suggestive advert with the tagline for this billboard apparently being, I like it deep and an open-mouthed, attractive woman 
on this billboard for a yogurt ad, or I think it's a yogurt, it's either yogurt or chocolate, I'm not sure which. When she goes to the shopping mall, I mean, this gigantic shopping mall, which is covered in logos from Western companies, she goes in to buy her daughter a toy. And very deliberately, she picks up a toy car and not the doll, which comes with a tea set and a couple of babies. And that is a shot which has lingered on for a while. When she goes to the till and puts down this toy car that she is buying for her daughter, she is behind in the queue at the till, a woman who is trying to buy her groceries with food stamps or the the Romanian equivalent of food stamps, and she doesn't have enough. So she's trying to figure out, oh, what can I do without? And the woman immediately behind this woman is basically a Karen. She's saying, oh, you idiot, poor person, why are you holding up our day? I mean, don't you have any shame? Shouldn't you be buying those giant bottles of beer with your food stamps? I'm going to try and push past you because you're just not worth it. I mean, it's a very, very Karen attitude to have. And I think that is a very deliberate thing which Radu Jude is doing. When Ketchup Pascaria goes into a pharmacy. She overhears an argument about a political scandal, being apparently rich people skipping the queue to get transplant surgeries. And she also overhears somebody saying, you know, you can't get COVID from the Eucharist spoon in the Romanian Orthodox Church. I mean, these angry people, these people who are just parking their SUVs in the middle of the streets. And she says, can you move your car? And the guy says, no, just walk around, you stupid bitch. I mean, and that's almost exactly what he says. I mean, there's unkind people. There's angry people. There's confused people. I mean, this is a time of COVID. And all of these things are a portrait of Romanian society and Romanian culture at large. The environment in which the final section of this film, this kangaroo court, is going to be taking place. And I think it's brilliantly done. When I realised, oh, he's going to be doing this for a while, and you know, now I've got my torrented version, I, I know that it goes on for 33 minutes. I mean... This is, I think, a film which arguably is too long, but he really, really gets into the situation in which this woman finds herself in. I mean, and Romanian society and Romanian culture is brought to bear in this film. And I think it's significant that the very final thing that Katja Pascari walks past on the streets of Bucharest is a closed-down and verging-on-derelict cinema. And that is a deliberate point that Radio Jude is trying to make. There is no culture anymore in walking past this shuttered cinema. So I was thinking, okay, that section was brilliant. It was too long, but it was brilliant. I mean, I could see exactly what Radio Jude was doing showing all the factors which build in to this kangaroo court which Ketchup Pascari was going to face. Now we can get on to 
what we're waiting for. You know, this examination of misogyny and slut shaming, which this poor woman is going to be subjected to. But that's not what happens. The second section of this film is what director Radu Jude calls a list of anecdotes, signs and wonders. And this is basically a montage of, again, all different aspects of Romanian society. I mean, this is a glossary of terms. It turns out it's in A to Z. Now I've seen it for a second time. I mean, but because it's in Romanian, you don't necessarily pick up on that immediately. But this is some occasionally funny, but usually horrifying and usually confrontational material, which is again in the ferment of what Romanian society and world society is in at the moment. And this montage, this middle section, goes on for 26 minutes. And there are things discussing the horrors of the Second World War, the fact that one of the heroes of the Second World War, Marshal Antonescu, collaborated with the Nazis and did exterminate a lot of Jews, something which is not fully appreciated and not fully believed by Romanian culture at the present. And that was the subject of Radu Jude's last film, I Do Not Care If We Go Down in History as Barbarians, which was a quote by Marshal Antonescu. And that film dealt with a theatre director who goes to the eastern portion of Romania where this Jew extermination happened and puts on a performance saying, Marshal Antonescu did this, we should appreciate this, we should learn from history. And I'm pretty sure that Radu Jude actually put on that theatrical performance in an Eastern Romanian town. And some of the reactions were genuine reactions from members of the public watching. So, yeah, this is something that Radu Jude is constantly dealing with, is the relationship that Romania and the world at large has with history, with completely failing to understand, completely failing to learn from history and completely failing to acknowledge the harsher parts of history. And that is one of the things which Radu Jude is definitely trying to do in this film. And he talks about the horrors of the Second World War. He deals with the less-than-perfect record of the Romanian Orthodox Church. In the 1989 revolution, he makes the point that Bucharest Cathedral had its doors locked and dissidents were killed because they couldn't find sanctuary there's also cell phone footage of a modern day romanian orthodox priest blithely listening to a group of nuns singing fascist songs there's footage of a torrent of floodwater which is absolutely covered in plastic bottles There's footage of a TV debate where incredibly misogynistic language is used and nothing much is done about it. There's footage of what seems to be a continuing magazine 
which is war magazine and seems to be do nothing but glorify the Nazis. There is a 2020 Benito Mussolini calendar. There is shocking statements made. A Bucharest police chief saying that if a wife wants to report her husband for beating her, she should wait until the morning and not call out the police in the middle of the night. 55% of people saying that rape is acceptable in certain situations. 60% of Romanian children are apparently beaten in their homes. All of this is incredibly confrontational, incredibly harsh, and those are the points which Radu Jude is trying to make. There's also unsimulated sex in this section as well. There is a scene of a blowjob. There is a scene of a cam girl using a dildo on herself. There is a scene where the entire screen is filled up with an erection. When he wants to define the word pornography, he uses really, really old footage. I mean, it looks like it was shots either in the late 19th or early 20th century means really really old footage of two men and a woman having sex with each other i mean i think the point being that pornography has been around since the beginning of film but yeah all these things are in this i mean it's making all these points confronting you with all the harshness all the realities of this situation but equally, occasionally, sometimes the pretentiousness of this situation. In defining the word cinema, Radu Jude makes the point that when Perseus tried to defeat Medusa the Gorgon, he was told to have a mirror shield, and that way he didn't need to look directly at the Gorgon and could behead her. And in Ruddy Jude's mind, that is what cinema is. It is Perseus's shield, because we can only observe horrors in reflection, and the reflection of horrors is the cinema screen. Which is a somewhat profound statement to make. It's also really, really pretentious, and yeah, I think that's the balancing act you have to see, I mean, the tightrope you have to walk when you're talking about Radu Jude. I mean, like I said, his last film, I Do Not Care If We Go Down in History and Barbarians, was confrontationally about Romania not dealing with its own history. And his film before that, Afarim, was very much about racism and anti-Semitism in Romanian society, and particularly in the Romanian church. Radu Jude has such a poor opinion of the culture of his own country, and he wants to tell everybody about it, and he is making universal statements about society and culture and pornography and shame and all these kinds of things. And it's really, really fascinating. And finally, we get to the third section of this film, which is 44 minutes long, and finally, it is the Kangaroo Court. It is this hard-working, good teacher being confronted and being utterly, utterly humiliated 
by this kangaroo court of parents. Very notably, one of these parents is in military uniform, one of them is a priest, one of them shows up a little bit late and is an airline pilot and has very, very fascist, very right-wing ideologies. He was very concerned with conspiracy theories, all that kind of stuff. But basically, it's a group of parents who, like that character in The Simpsons, won't somebody think of the children? And the leader of this mob, essentially, is one of the parents played by Olympia Malai. And everybody in this film is wearing a face mask, and everybody in this scene is wearing a face mask, and they are more or less socially distanced. And because I got this pirated on my computer, I mean, I paid for it once. I don't feel too bad about getting a pirated version as well and, and really digging into it. But everybody's wearing a mask, and the one that Olympia Malai has is a white mask, but it's got some words at the top of it. It's got words in the Romanian flag colours, red, yellow, blue. And because I had access to a freeze frame and Google Translate, I can tell you that the words which are on the face mask of Olympia Malai in Romanian flag colours are I am God. This is the woman who is trying to get Ketchup Ascariu sacked from her job. And going about it in the most humiliating way possible. I mean, basically slut-shaming this woman. I mean, she had an intimate, fun time with her husband, who she is married to, who they had a religious ceremony to solemnise their union. This was a private moment between two consenting adults and she's going to lose her job over it, or they are trying to take her job away from her because of it. And the idea of the personal life, the professional life, and the private life is brought to the fore. I mean, the interactions that you have in the privacy of your own home in the modern day can be shared with everybody, including sort of 12, 13 year old kids. Because, of course, if you hear a rumour that your teacher is on a sex tape online, you are going to share it. So everybody in a class has seen it, this classroom of 12, 13-year-old children. And the idea that this private act between consenting adults is so horrifying, so shocking, so damaging to children that she must lose her job, the arguments are absurd, and she's constantly saying, you know, this was between consenting adults in the privacy of our home. What is the issue? I mean, yes, it shouldn't have happened, but kids are going to see this. Kids are going to seek this out, particularly since I'm not allowed to teach sex ed because of those priests getting in the way. The idea that pornography harms children is one of the things which has constantly come back to and is basically dismissed out of hand. I mean, the idea that this statement can be made with no backing, no evidence, is constantly being made. And as this discussion continues, it goes off on multiple tangents, 
showing the misogyny, the racism, the anti-Semitism of this environment. I mean, it's a certain point to say, and while we're at it, she shouldn't be teaching propaganda about the Holocaust. The indoctrination which has been paid by Mossad. I mean, she is outright asked at one point, are you a Jew? And saying that, you know, in the Second World War, people like Marshal Antonescu did massacre Jews. And this is something which shouldn't be taught in a history class. I mean, and I think it's no accident that Radu Jude made this woman a history teacher. But suddenly she's being accused of promoting Jewish propaganda for simply teaching about the Holocaust. There's also a tangent about the national poet Eminescu, who's apparently on Romanian banknotes. That's one of the things which is in this middle section montage, is a banknote with this poet Eminescu on it. And everybody's saying, how can you say this is freedom of speech or, or this is personal? I mean, our beloved poet Eminescu would never do such a thing. And Catcher Pascario says, um, actually, he did write erotic poetry and proceeds to recite one. I mean, she knows what she's talking about. She's done her research. And other people have as well. At various points, we have lengthy quotations dropped into this film about the way children are taught. And you're a child psychologist talking about the way children are taught. And weirdly, there's also a very, very long quotation from an educational administrator talking about the benefits of memorization. Just how you memorize dates apparently is actually beneficial. People have done studies about this. The way a human brain works or a child's brain works, if you give them a list of dates to memorize, it actually works. It actually helps. And this is you know, an educated person saying this, but the parents, I mean, they know best. They say, you know, well, it, it's no good teaching our kids this way. It's no good just having drilling memorization into their minds. And Ketchupuskari says, yes, it is. And I've got evidence. And at every point, the calm, rational, reasonable arguments of Ketchupuskari are shouted down by the bigotry and the conspiracy theories and the anti-Semitism and the Romophobia. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in this film about the gypsy community and how the gypsy community is mistreated. I mean, one of the things in the middle section montage is cell phone footage of a bus driver beating a Roma woman with a stick simply because he didn't want a gypsy on his bus. And there is some racism in that direction that comes up in this kangaroo court, despite the fact that one of the mothers in this kangaroo court is wearing a hijab and one of the fathers is black. And it's just not acknowledged that you maybe shouldn't be saying these incredibly racist things in this environment. But that's just the way Romanian society is. And that's, I think, is what Radu Jude is trying to say. And the utter humiliation of this woman, which goes on for 44 minutes, is so aggravating to see 
but it's perfect. It's saying this is what it has come to. This is what Romanian society is, and by extension, this is what world society is. I mean, this airline pilot who comes in late and has all these conspiracy theories and right-wing views has clearly been influenced by Donald Trump. I mean, a lot of Trumpisms come out of his mouth. And seeing it all brought out, seeing it all blurted out onto the screen by the very, very angry, very confrontational director Radio G is something to see. I mean, this is a hard film to truly recommend because certain people are just not going to connect with this or not going to respect it at all. But I really, really did, particularly with the final scene because the epilogue of this film is three alternative endings. This film ends three times. And I think it's significant that in none of these three endings is it an especially happy ending. I mean, it's certainly not a triumphant ending of any of these three statements. But it does have a level of high surrealism and high absurdism. The final of these three endings is just a riot. And the still which closes the film and which the end credits are rolling over. It's over the final still image of the film, and that is so confrontational, so provocative, and so perfect. You know exactly what Radio Jude was doing, rather mischievously having that as the final image of the film. But he's making a point. And that's what he's doing. I mean, he's confrontationally making a point. I mean, basically, this is a fascinating and, I found, exhilarating blending of so many different things. This has the rapid-fire absurdism of Roy Anderson, it has the confrontational politics of Spike Lee, and it has the philosophical lecturing of Slavoj Žižek. You will certainly be lectured at, both literally and metaphorically, when watching this film. But I think it's a lecture worth going on. I think it's a statement worth exploring. It's a world worth exploring. And Radu Jude has taken us by our lapels and shaken us and said, this is what the world has come to. It's a shit show. What are we going to do about it? And I found that so compelling. I mean, like I said, this is a hard film to fully endorse. A lot of people, if not most people, will completely reject this film out of hand. But I found it absolutely thrilling and compelling. And as far as I'm concerned, Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn, available cinematically, is a yay. Netflix and chill. A cop movie is a Mexican hybrid documentary drama directed by Alonso Ruiz Palacios, who is a director with something of an international profile. His first feature film, Gueros, in 2014, won minor awards at the Berlin, Tribeca and San Sebastian Film Festivals 
and it also won Mexican Academy Awards for Best Picture and Best Director. Although, weirdly, it was not submitted by Mexico to the Oscars. But it got international attention, international acclaim, and did get international distribution, including here in the UK. Although, I must admit, I never actually got around to it. Alonso Ruiz Palacio's second film, Museo, didn't get quite so much attention, even though it did have Gael Garcia Bernal in it, but did play at the Berlin Film Festival and did win a Mexican Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. And since Museo in 2016, Alonso Ruiz Palacios has done a handful of television episodes, including a couple of episodes of the Netflix drama, the highly successful Netflix drama Narcos Mexico. And now he returns with his third film, A Cop Movie, which again premiered at the Berlin Film Festival and also played at San Sebastian in London, and it was one of the most highly promoted films at the London Film Festival, but since even in the brochure it had the fact that it was coming out on Netflix, I just waited until it did come out on Netflix. And here we are with me watching it on the bus journey over to watch Bad Luck Banging. And I will remind you that in order to fully review this film, I will be going into the exact structure of this film and the precise way it is a drama documentary hybrid, which has not been made clear and obvious in the marketing or the publicity. And arguably you might have a better experience of this film if you don't know too much going in, but it's the only way I can talk about it, so fair warning given. So, this film starts with a female police officer on the streets of Mexico City. She's in her patrol car. The radio is giving all these codes, this incomprehensible mishmash of numbers and letters and streets and codes. And she has been sent to a woman giving birth, essentially. A woman is in labour. The people in her apartment block called for an ambulance. And two hours later, they don't get an ambulance. They get one female officer in a police car. And with the ambulance service spectacularly ill-equipped and just not going to show up in time, this female police officer has to deliver this baby with no proper formal training. That's just the way things are for a police person on the streets of Mexico City. And then we follow her home. She goes to her apartment, starts petting her dog, all the while giving a narration about her life, her experiences, why she became a cop, all this kind of stuff, very fourth wall breaking almost a monologue direct to camera, and in certain places deliberately, literally direct to camera. We then follow a male police officer who does a similar thing, you know, goes around his day-to-day business, talks about you know, all the exciting times he had brandishing his gun, but also we see him taking bribes from people. I mean, at one point he takes a bribe from somebody when he stops traffic so a group of school children can cross the street. 
while the audio is describing how he ran people down with guns. I mean, and that made me wonder, I mean, at what point does a bribe become a tip? How much of a difference is there? But anyway, you know, the mildly corrupt way that the police function in Mexico City is brought to bear in this first two sections in the, the first half of the film. And I was watching this and I was thinking, okay, I've heard this is a drama documentary hybrid. What the hell's going on? Because this is far too perfect. This is far too constructed. The cinematography is precise. There are a lot of artful and very, very carefully composed close-ups. The fact that we have this constant fourth wall breaking and these people turn to the camera and talk directly to the audience about their experiences. I mean, this is clearly constructed. This is clearly manufactured, scripted. And then about halfway through the film, it reveals itself. The filming process breaks down and we hear the audio of these two people who it turns out are a couple in a relationship with each other. We're in their apartments and they're talking to the camera as a couple. And then the lighting breaks down and yet the audio is still going on. And it is revealed that these two people we have been following are not police officers as we have been led to believe. They're actually actors. Monica del Carmen and Raul Briones. And Raul Briones, by the way, was also in Alonso Ruiz Palacios' first film, Guero. So these two actors have essentially been performing monologues and Alonso Ruiz Palacios has been filming them and making this into a cop movie. In certain places, there's pulse-pounding, high-octane music. Over the opening credits, it's evoking the, you know, the cool cop movies of the 1970s. There's a very, very distinct Lalo Schifrin vibe to this whole thing. You know, the guy who wrote the theme to Bullet and the theme to Mission Impossible. He's deliberately evoking that kind of cool attitude and you know, the juxtaposition of the very mundane and mildly corrupt life of these police officers and the cool expectations of being a cop. Alonso Ruiz Palacios has definitely been putting that juxtaposition out there. And then when the film reveals itself, when we reveal that these are actually two actors, you start to uncover the documentary aspects of this film because it turns out that before performing these roles, both Monica del Carmen and Raul Briones spent six months attending the Mexico City Police Academy alongside real-life cadets who wanted to become Mexico City police officers. And in the second half of the film, we start having talking head interviews with some of these other recruits, these other cadets into the Mexico City police, and we see the real-life people who Raul Bionez and Monica del Carmen have been performing the lives of, because these are real stories, real monologues, which have been given by these people who are a couple and are police officers in Mexico City. And essentially, Raul Briones and Monica del Carmen have been performing and or lip-syncing these monologues which have been pre-recorded from these real-life police officers. 
And that's where the drama documentary hybrid comes in. And when we see that all the stuff that we have seen, yes, it has been perfectly framed, perfectly photographed, dramatically lit, it's got dramatic score underneath it. It's all real stuff from real people. It brings into focus everything that being a cop means, both in reality and in the mythology which has been built up around being a cop that we have through mass media. And th that seems to be the focus that Alonso Ruiz Palacios is trying to talk about, the difference between the, the myth and the reality, which is entirely based on corruption. There is low-level corruption. I mean, at one point, the real cop that Raul Bionez is talking, the male cop, on camera with his own face says, look, look, you need to be mildly corrupt in order to survive. A police salary just doesn't cover the amount of backhanders you have to give out on a day-to-day -day basis. If you don't bribe the police armourer, you don't get given the good bulletproof vests. If you don't bribe the admin staff, they will not prioritise your cases. Even within the police force, there's a miasma of low-level corruption, and that's just the way things are. So, of course, you're going to hustle kids on the street, you know, oh, you're loitering, give us a few pesos, that kind of thing. And that's just the way things are. And when, by the end of the film, it is revealed a particular story which happened to the policewoman, which is being played by Monica Del Carmen. Because she tried to do the right thing, and this annoyed people above her in the police force, her career was gravely affected for trying to do the right thing from her own side. It was police officers who smacked her down and said, no, you shouldn't be doing the right thing. Let's just get along to go along. And this complete lack of consequences and this complete lack of empathy for the people being policed is, again, something which I think Alonso Ruiz Palacios is trying to say. Look, if these are the people who are trying to look after us, what does that say about our society? And how much corruption, how much bribery actually goes on in Mexican society. And when we have Monica Del Carmen and Raul Briones going through the police academy, they record journals on their cell phones and they start talking about the other people who are there. I mean, some of them are you know, people who genuinely want to help, you know, I want to make a difference. Some of them are just there for a paycheck. And if you're just there for a paycheck and you're given a gun and you're put into a culture which encourages, if not demands, bribery, then what kind of police officer are you going to be? Monica Del Carmen, who has native background, makes the point that there are a lot of darker-skinned Mesoamerican Indian people who are in the police force, or at least in the academy. Maybe this is one of the few areas where a darker-skinned individual can try and make some money. 
she also makes the startling point that at least 90% of the female officers in the Mexico City Police Force are single mothers, which is a tiny bit disturbing, I think, on a couple of different levels, not least of which the fact that it is just acknowledged that female officers are going to get sexually harassed by their colleagues. Again, that's just the way things are. And examining this broken, corrupt system from the inside, from people who have actually gone through the training, and we see Monica Darkarman and Raul Briones going through the training, or you know, in limited capacities because there are restrictions about what you can film, but we do see some of this training being gone through. We know that they actually did it for six months in order to prepare for these roles and then you know perfectly rehearsed these monologues which had already been given by the real police officers and lip synced along to them it's really really well done i also think it, it finds time to make valid and interesting points about the psychological tolls that is taken upon these people i mean both of these real life Police officers have broken relationships in their past and sort of connected you know, as kind of a support structure initially and then romantic stuff started and they started living together. But the male police officer starts talking about some really, really dark moments he had and there's a very disturbing sequence where Real Briones acts out some of the things which are being described. And this is a psychologically damaged man and what does it do to be put in this authority position this pressure cooker environment how do you cope with that can you cope with it and the answer is not always yes so it spends time talking about the psychological toll and weirdly it also starts talking about the acting process itself during this six months of police training, Raul Briones starts in these cell phone recorded journals. He starts lashing out. I mean, how, why am I a police officer? Why am I doing this for a role, for a, a position which I don't believe in? I don't believe the police are there to help me, and yet I'm going through this process in order to do it. I mean, it's a film about the acting process as well in a couple of different ways because we have these actors who are pretending or inhabiting the position of police cadets but the argument is made in both of these actors descriptions in these video journals both monica del carmen and Raul Brones make the point that these young police cadets, many of them just out of high school, many of them just looking for a job, many of them from Mesoamerican Indian backgrounds, have six months training, they're given a gun, and then they're put out on the streets. So to some degree, you are acting as being a cop, even though you've been through the process. And it becomes a narrative also about the acting process itself. In my notes that I was making as I was watching this film, I actually made reference to the film Kate Plays Christine, which again is a hybrid drama documentary about the actress Caitlin Shire preparing the role 
of Christine Chubbuck, the Florida news reporter who committed suicide live on air. So she is thinking about the creative process, thinking about inhabiting this woman, this notorious woman. And it, it becomes a story about the acting process itself, more than anything. And the final scene, the final images of Kate plays Christine are absolutely astonishing, and I loved it. I did classify it as one of my top documentaries of 2016. But I got a similar vibe here in a cop movie that I did with Kate plays Christine, in that one of the aspects of it is it is a film about the acting process itself. And I did find strong comparisons between a cop movie and Kate plays Christine. And entirely coincidentally, the other Netflix film that I watched this week is directed by Robert Green, who directed Kate plays Christine. And again, that is a drama documentary hybrid. So yeah, a weird connection that was entirely coincidental. But yeah, both of these films remind me of the work of Robert Green particularly since the second one is directed by Robert Green. But yeah, Kate Plays Christine is worth checking out. And I also think this film is worth checking out as well. It's perhaps a tiny bit too clever for its own good. Did you need to put these two actors through six months of police training for this role? Something which is repeatedly brought up by Raoul Brionis, who I'm not entirely sure enjoyed this process. But the effect we have, the way that these actors inhabit the stories, the characters of the people they are portraying, the way we see the real-life people by the end and we see the real conflicted feelings they have about their job, I mean, the fact that, in their opinion, they need to accept small bribes in order to function, the fact that the female police officer played by Monica Del Carmen has been completely fucked over by her superiors for trying to do the right thing. It's got all different kinds of thought-provoking moments in it, and I do think it works. So yeah, it's a strange movie, it's in Spanish, but I do think there's something valuable in it. And if anything I've said at all about this project interests you, then I do think it's worth checking out. A cop movie is available now on Netflix, and as far as I'm concerned, it is a solid, intriguing meh. So the second drama documentary hybrid film I watched on Netflix this week is, as I said, directed by Robert Green, who did Kate Plays Christine. And the blending of the narrative and the documentary is something that Robert Green has done throughout his career. Basically his entire filmography is in some way about the process of filmmaking, about the process of recreation and reconstruction. Indeed the film that Robert Green made between Kate Place Christine and 2016 and this film Procession now is a film called Bisbee 17, which in the US seems to have ended up on PBS, and I don't think got any form of legal distribution here in the UK. But it tells a really fascinating story. In 1917, the 
tiny mining town of Bisbee, Arizona, deported hundreds of striking mine workers. These were union members who believed in fair pay and fair working conditions. So the mining company just rounded everybody up. Not all of them actual strikers and not all of them actual union members and shipped them off into the middle of nowhere in New Mexico. So Robert Green went to modern day Bisbee, Arizona, or at least 2016 Bisbee, Arizona, on the centenary of this mass deportation and got the townsfolk of Bisbee, Arizona to reconstruct this event in their history. And not all of these people believe this was a bad thing. You know, those socialists, those union people, they were just trying to screw everything up. The mine owners were right to get rid of them. But in 2017, rounding up people violently, rounding up people and taking them away from small town Arizona has a very different context and a very different meaning than it did in 1917. I think that was a subtle, or perhaps not so subtle, attack on the Trump era or the the kind of politics which allowed Trump to flourish. But yeah, I thought that was a very, very fascinating project, and I I kind of regret I never got the opportunity to see it. Actually, I wonder if it's available streaming on the UK version of PBS. But anyway, yeah, Robert Greene does this the whole time. The blending of the drama and the documentary. And this particular film, Procession, was sparked off when he saw a press conference given by a group of men who had been sexually abused by priests in the Diocese of Kansas City, Missouri. These men who were trying to get justice for the abuse, the horrors that they had gone through, had this press conference, and this sparked something in Robert Green. So he contacted these men's lawyer and said, I'm interested in doing a film about these men. Do you think you could find me some collaborators in the dozens of cases that you have currently running against the Diocese of Kansas City? So Robert Green goes to Kansas City and starts working with six of these survivors of paedophile priests. Joe Eldred, Mike Foreman, Ed Gavigan, Dan Lorene, Michael Sandridge and Tom Viviano agree to go through a process of drama therapy with Robert Green. They have the lawyer that they've all been working with who is promoting their case. They have a professional drama therapist and they also have trained counsellors as their support structure as they go through their childhood traumas and agree to write and direct short films based directly on their experiences of being abused by Catholic priests. And this film shows that process and shows the films that they make. It's in places pretty harrowing, in places pretty moving. It's 
it's powerful stuff. And I think is a way to approach these horrors and these traumas in somewhat digestible ways. I mean, it's actually a little bit like that thing that Radu Jude said in Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn. Cinema acts like Perseus's shield. We can only watch horrors through reflection rather than looking at them directly. And that's kind of what this film is doing. As these six men process their trauma and write these scripts based on their own experiences and actually start borrowing stuff from other people's experiences and it becoming a blending a little bit of all of their experiences from you know different paedophile priests, one of whom ended up as a bishop and even as a bishop was still abusing boys, including one of these men who are doing this process. So as they go through this process and support each other and approach these traumas, sometimes for the first time, and write these short films based on their experiences, it forms a kind of a support structure, a kind of catharsis, which seems to be a valuable process for these men. I mean, there's a couple of scenes where, you know, there seems to be genuine breakthroughs made. I mean, in this somewhat risky strategy of directly confronting your traumas and directly making films about. But that's what these men did, and it's very, very powerful stuff. But I'm a tiny, tiny bit conflicted about the way this film has been structured. I think there are benefits and costs i think there are pros and cons of this approach but we never directly see beginning to end any of these short films in the movie we have we see chunks of them but it's never fully distanced it's never fully you know we are sitting back and observing these short films being shown to us it's always a living breathing experience or i'll give you an example the film opens on this initial press conference given by these men and their lawyer and then we immediately go i mean then a, a title card comes up and says robert green saw this press conference and wants to make a film including these men and then we go into the first of these short films you know a boy is going through you know being an altar boy going through a a catholic mass uh, it's actually a, a baptism is going on but something bad is going on in the background and we can see something bad is going on in the background and eventually he runs away and it's almost like the end of the graduate he goes up to a balcony at the back of the church and looks down and everybody looks back and the priest has glowing green eyes and it's like okay this is this is cool stuff i mean going you know from the beginning of the process to the end of the process almost you know this is the press conference which sparked this movie being made and here is one of the short films which ended up coming out of it and then we go into the background and we see these six men um, and at the end of this short film there is a title card saying this is a film directed by Joe Eldred, Mike Foreman, Ed Gavigan, Dan Lorene, Michael Sandridge, and Tom Viviano, 
and Robert Greene's name is in much smaller text in a sea of other people who are involved in it. You know, the, the undercard. I mean, this is a film which has been directed by these six men. And then we go into the background and we see the beginning of the process, these men meeting each other, some of them meeting for the first time in this kind of workshop where they, you know, this is what drama therapy is. This is what we are going to do. Is everybody comfortable doing this? What, what are your thoughts? What are your feelings? And, and starting going through the process and discussing things. And we see the process being gone through. But later on in the film, we see a slightly different version of the second half of that same initial short film we saw. And it turns out that the, the person who wrote that particular short film, it wasn't his nightmare which had the glowing green eyes. It was one of the other boys' nightmares which had the glowing green eyes. So they're kind of borrowing from each other's experiences and using imagery and iconography from different images in each other's material. And yeah, seeing them going through the process, I mean, one of them was abused at a lake house and they try and find the lake house and decide whether or not to film there. There's other people who are you know, trying to reconnect with their brother who was also abused and trying to reconcile that. And some of them get really, really into this process. I mean, of these six men, one of them actually works in commercial filmmaking in the Kansas City area. So he becomes the de facto second unit director of this entire film. And one of the other men is an interior designer. So they kind of team up and become the kind of the creative wing of this project. And they're the people we spend the most time following as they're going through this process, writing these short films and dealing with these memories and these people. And the fact that the Catholic Church is just not doing anything about this. They're just hoping that these priests die and they don't actually have to arrest them or defrock them, including this bishop. I mean, there's a very deliberate shot where we see this bishop, who was Bishop of Cheyenne, Wyoming, in a photograph with Pope John Paul II. They just don't want to deal with this, and the Cheyenne Police Department don't want to open that can of worms either. So none of these cases are ongoing, with the exception of Tom Viviano. We don't actually see a lot of Tom Viviano out of these six men, because his court case is pending there have been charges being brought so you know no public statements can be made you know in order to sway the jury or whatever so he can't actually tell his story so in something which is incredibly strange and i think incredibly brave tom viviano takes it upon himself to act as the priest in most of the other short films that the other men are making. This is the way he can contribute to this process. Dressing up as a priest and acting out these things, which cannot be easy, and there's certain places where it's clearly not easy, and he, Tom Viviano gets very, very angry at, at certain points. 
portraying these these priests. But it is significant, and I think it's deliberately put in the film, that out of these six men, only one has an active criminal case in progress. And there are at least 400 cases in the Kansas City area alone of paedophile priests. And nothing's being done. And that's one of the things which this film brings up. And there's a great deal of anger at this. And that is most prominent in one of these men, Mike Foreman, who is a seething, explosive ball of rage. His case was dismissed after the statutes of limitations ran out and after he went through an independent review board which said there wasn't enough evidence to pursue his abuser. And on this independent review board, there was a Catholic priest who in the reconstruction is being played by Tom Viviano And naturally, this makes him angry, but Mike Foreman is so explosively angry that it's actually uncomfortable to watch at certain points. I mean, he does that self-soothing, rocking back and forth thing, and apparently he's been doing it for decades. He does it on screen occasionally, and it, it is painful to watch. But the rage is still just a millimetre under the surface of this man. and. Yeah, it's it's difficult to watch in places. But for other people, this is a process which definitely, definitely works. Joe Eldred seems to have a genuine breakthrough at a certain point. And the way that Dan Lorene and Michael Sandridge, the commercials director and the interior designer respectively, work through the process of doing the technical side of this film. It helps them significantly as well, or it seems to, anyway. So, yeah, there is genuine breakthroughs here, but there's also extreme anger. And that comes out in certain places. I mean, like that moment where Tom Viviano, playing a priest, notices that there's a lock on the inside of the confessional booth he's currently in, which makes him explosively angry. And there are moments when the survivors are basically directing their own scenes. And in each of these scenes, you know, the boy is being played by the same young actor, a kid named Tarek Trobor. And he seems to be a remarkably well-adjusted kid. I mean, going through these each of these individual experiences and acting out these men's experiences and working with them. But there's one point, I mean, Ed Gavigan is essentially directing his own scene, you know, the first time that he suspected something was wrong with the bishop who he was an altar boy for. And Tarek Trobor, and actually the priest in that one is Michael Sandridge, but Tarek Trobor, this kid actor and this guy playing the priest, I mean, they're acting it out. And I mean, as it comes to an end, instead of saying cut, Ed Gavigan just screams cut to the extent that it clearly shocks Tarek Trobor. And in a different scene, 
Mike Foreman, the very angry one, is going through this process and, and recreating this quote unquote independent review board, which dismissed his case. And he just goes off on a rant and starts screaming at, at these people. I mean, not entirely in character. And in the middle of this rant, he breaks character, he breaks the fourth wall and apologizes to the kid actor Tarek Trobor in the middle of it. So those behind the scenes moments, I mean, the fact that Ed Gavadigan didn't say cut, he screamed cut you know, as you know, the uncomfortable stuff was just about to happen. And the fact that Mike Foreman you know, breaks character, so to speak, in order to apologize to the actor who is playing a younger version of himself. Those moments are incredibly effective. The fact that this drama therapy process, which is being undertaken under strict professional boundaries, you know, with professional therapists who do this for a living, the fact that it does affect them in these ways and we see the process working or maybe starting to work, that is valuable. And I do think it was probably the right direction to take. But the cinephile part of me, the part of me which loves the filmmaking process, does somewhat regret that we don't see any of these short films end-to-end. The fact that this short film, which is essentially playing under the opening credits, we see a little bit of the beginning and another chunk of it in the middle of the film. We never see it together. The fact we don't see the final project of Ed Gavigan and this bishop who was just about to make advances to this boy. And or, you know, the different approaches, I mean, Ed Gavigan has this thing about hands, which I think is very, very impressive. Uh, so, you know, non-professionals coming up with good directions. I mean, one of them even comes up with a storyboard, which I found rather delightful. But these non-professionals, or at least five out of the six of them are non-professionals, and they're all getting into the process and making these films and working through their traumas. And in certain places, it seems to work, it seems to help. And that is uplifting. And the fact that the Catholic Church is basically doing fuck all to help these people, they're just waiting for it to go away, they are genuinely shocked and astonished that the current Bishop of Cheyenne, Wyoming, acknowledges previous childhood traumas and actually allows them gives them full permission to shoot inside the cathedral of cheyenne wyoming or at least you know take reference photos they are so surprised that a catholic priest or a catholic bishop is actually acknowledging his predecessor's misdeeds and the traumas that have been gone through and, and that shouldn't be the case it shouldn't be the exception that a Catholic priest accepts this happened to understand that bad things were done. Most of it just wants to put it under the rug. I mean, one of these men even gets a letter from the Vatican saying, we are very sorry, but no, we're not going to defrock this bishop who abused boys. It's so frustrating, so aggravating. But seeing the process 
function, seeing the process work, I mean, and at least start to try and heal some of the traumas of these men. It is powerful, but this is, in places, an immensely frustrating, aggravating film, which doesn't have easy answers. Shows the complete lack of a driving force to solve this problem, and even acknowledge it from the Catholic Church. And it's, in places, a somewhat problematic film. But I also think it's an immensely powerful film. And, yeah, I I think these men are incredibly brave. I think they are pioneers. With any luck, this will encourage and support other men and women, I suppose, who need to come forward, who need to deal with their own traumas in the past. And maybe that process will help. But, yeah, it's a, a very powerful movie and a great documentary i did like is probably not the right word but i did appreciate this film a lot and the directing work of robert green in collaboration with joe eldred mike foreman ed gavigan dan Lorene, michael sandridge and tom viviana and for me procession on netflix is a very hard watch a very harrowing watch but it's also a very powerful watch and for me it was a yay coming attractions it's an odd week at the cinema this week with no really big releases out but still quite a few films i'm interested in seeing perhaps the biggest release of the week is a film called boxing day which is written and directed by the very talented actor Amal Amin. I believe this is his directorial debut and is a somewhat autobiographical story about an author, in this case, played by Amal Amin, who is coming back to his native London from New York or from America with his possible American fiance in tow. Judging by the trailer, He proposed and she threw up. So are they actually a couple? Are they actually engaged? Who knows? But he is going to spend Christmas with his incredibly large Afro-Caribbean family. And wouldn't you know it, his ex-girlfriend, who is now a famous singer, also comes into the mix. So will the romantic and familial complications of this large Afro-Caribbean family end happily? Almost certainly, but it still looks pretty good and it's got a good cast. I mean, I do like Amal Amin. It's also got people like Marianne Jean Baptiste in it. And that does look like fun. A lot less fun, but certainly also intriguing, is a film called Silent Night, which has what looks like an incredibly strange premise. It stars Kira Knightley and Matthew Good as a couple who are having a Christmas period dinner party with lots of their friends and family. Their three kids are being played by Roman Griffin Davis from Jojo Rabbit and his two brothers. And this film is directed by Roman Griffin Davis's mother. So I can't help feeling that 
at least some of the pay packet that Roman Griffin Davis got for J.J. Rabbit went towards financing this film Silent Night. But whatever. This large dysfunctional family is gathering together for Christmas, but this will be the last Christmas that anybody on Earth will ever have because a somewhat unspecified, somewhat mysterious catastrophe is imminent and everybody by the end of Christmas will be dead. So can we actually get along for the last few days we have on Earth? Of course we can't, because we're a dysfunctional British family. But yeah, it's got really interesting people in it, as well as Kira Knightley and Matthew Good. It's also got people like Lucy Punch in it, and she's always good value. Sope Dirisu, who is rapidly becoming one of the more impressive black actors of this generation. And yeah, that does look certainly intriguing. There's also a very political American indie movie called Blue Bayou, which is written by, directed by Anne Stars, a Korean-American actor called Justin Chan, who plays a Korean-American man who has grown up on the Louisiana Bayou. This is the only life he has ever known. He is as American as they come, apart from the fact he was adopted into America from Korea. But when a minor run-in with the law reveals that his legal status is not as secure as he thought it was, and there is every chance he will now be deported to Korea, a country he has never lived in, has never had a connection to, but apparently he's not American enough, despite the fact he's got a loving partner, I'm not sure if she's his wife, Alicia Vikander, and a stepdaughter who he dotes upon. But he's not American, you see, so he might just be packed off to Korea and left to fend for himself. So, yeah, I think that's a very pointed political statement made in that film, but it did get good reviews doing the festival circuit, so I am intrigued by Blue Bayou. And the last cinematic film that intrigues me this week is one I've low-key been looking forward to as soon as I heard about it. It's called Come On, Come On, and it combines two of my favourite filmmakers. This is the latest film from writer-director Mike Mills, who previously brought us Beginners and the Outstanding 20th Century Women. And it stars Joaquin Phoenix, who I think is an incredibly troubled man, but a phenomenal actor. And yes, he deserved an Oscar, but he deserved it for you would never really hear, not Joker. But anyway, Joaquin Phoenix starring in a film written and directed by Mike Mills. I mean, that combines so many of my absolute favourite things in independent cinema that I can't wait to see Come On, Come On, which follows Joaquin Phoenix as a radio journalist who unexpectedly has to look after his nephew whilst his sister is dealing with his brother-in-law's mental health issues. So Joaquin Phoenix and this kid who's about nine or ten years old, I think, 
end up going on a cross-country road trip together and bonding and connecting. It's all been shot in black and white and frankly, it looks awesome. I'm really, really looking forward to Come On, Come On. And Loki, that is one of my most eagerly anticipated films of this award baity season. And speaking of award baity, the first of the Netflix films which I want to talk about and has been released this week is what looks like the frontrunner to win Best Picture at the Oscars this year, The Power of the Dog. This is Jane Campion's latest film. This did enormously well at the Venice Film Festival. And, as I said, is expected to do well at the Oscars. I mean, could we actually have two female best directors in a row? Who knows? But this film, The Way of the Dog, is a psychological western in which two brothers, Benedict Cumberbatch and Jesse Plemons, are ranchers in 1920s Montana. When Jesse Plemons marries a local widow, played by his real-life wife, Kristen Dunst, Kristen Dunst and her teenage son, Kobe Smith-McPhee, move to Benedict Cumberbatch's ranch. And Benedict Cumberbatch proceeds to treat his new sister-in-law with remarkable cruelty, but also forms an unlikely and strong bond with the new teenage boy who has entered his farm, played by Cody Smith-McPhee. So, yeah, looks like lots of uh, stuff going on there. But, yeah, it's supposed to be a legitimate best picture contender. So. I do want to check out The Power of the Dog. At the completely other end of the spectrum is another Netflix Christmas movie which they have released, and this is a queer one. It's called Single All The Way, as a gay man goes back to his family home for Christmas, but is so sick and tired of his supportive family trying to hook him up with men, that he strong arms his gay male roommate to pretend that they've actually just crossed the line and they've moved from roommates to being partners. The roommate, who obviously secretly has a crush on our protagonist, goes along with this and misunderstandings and hijinks ensue, particularly when the family persuades our protagonist to end up on a dating app. So will these quote-unquote roommates actually end up together? What do you think? Or at least that seems to be the, the pattern. I mean, I'm assuming that's what it is. It stars Michael Yuri, who's apparently from Ugly Betty, and I, I think I watched two or three episodes of Ugly Betty. But yeah, a queer... Christmas romance on Netflix sounds charming. There's also a film in another genre which Netflix seems to make a lot of, a thought-provoking, possibly heart-rending teen movie called Mixtape, about an orphan girl who is living with her aunt and discovers a mixtape that her parents made 
And this being you know, a connection to a family long gone, she plays it over and over again to the extent that it breaks. So she then goes on a quest to find all the really obscure stuff that was on this mixtape that her mother left in order to fully reconnect. And there's tears and possible romance along the way. And yeah, it could be rather sappy, but could be kind of cool. And yeah, it's added to the list. So yeah, on Netflix, mixtape. And released this week on Netflix were two rather different films on a somewhat similar theme. There were two very different films about climbing in the Himalayas. One of them is a documentary called 14 Peaks Nothing Is Impossible about a man, a Sherpa in Nepal, who aims to climb the 14 highest peaks in the world in an incredibly short period of time. The shortest period of time that anybody has climbed the 14 peaks is something like seven years. He wants to do it in seven months. But he is a Sherpa, he lives in Nepal, he wants to promote the idea of you know, Sherpas as human beings rather than just pack mules for the enormous amount of tourists who end up going up Everest. So yeah, that sounds like an interesting proposition. And on a somewhat similar vein is another film about climbing Everest, but this is a French animation of a Japanese manga. It's called The Summit of the Gods and is the story of a Japanese photojournalist who goes on a trip to the Himalayas and sees a semi-legendary climber who many people think is just dead but he's got a camera and this photojournalist suspects that this camera that this semi-legendary climber has is actually the camera from the first attempt to summit Everest in the 1920s so he needs to get his hands on this camera so he falls in with this semi-legendary climber who is attempting to climb impossible peaks and pushing himself to the absolute limits and trying to find the summit of the gods. So yeah, an animated approach to the zen of climbing. And this has already been made into a live-action Japanese film in 2016. It's apparently a very, very popular manga. And now we have a French animated version of this tale which does look intriguing, so I do want to check out The Summit of the Gods. On streaming platforms, the documentary Becoming Cousteau, directed by the Oscar-winning documentarian Liz Garbus, is now definitely on Disney+, Plus on the National Geographic channel, so that has been added to the list. And I do now know that the film that Daniel Brühl directed, Next Door, has been released into the wider world as well. 
It's on many streaming platforms, not just Curzon Home Cinema. So that has been added to the priority list. And new things added to the list this week are a new animation called CryptoZoo, an animated film written and directed by Dash Shaw, which has been released onto Mubi, but is also available on iTunes. So I might want to check that out. It doesn't actually look all that good, but Dash Shaw is the guy who created and wrote My Entire High School Sinking Into the Sea, which I did actually really, really like a couple of years ago. So, yeah, the weird independent animation of Dash Shaw is added to the list. It follows the story of a woman voiced by Lake Bell who is travelling around the world trying to rescue cryptids, you know, things like unicorns and yetis and dragons and medusas and all that kind of stuff from the government who wants to use them for nefarious purposes. So, yeah, sounds kind of interesting, but the animation style is very, very strange. So I'm not sure about that, but it is added to the list. There's also a couple of micro, micro budget American films which have dribbled into UK streaming services. One is called Drama Rama, about the last night that a group of drama kids will be together. One of them is going off to university in the morning, and this is the last night they will be hanging out together. So they have a costume party slash murder mystery weekend and one of them is trying to screw up the courage and tell his friends that he's gay and in a very conservative restrictive environment that might not even be easy in the theater kid world so that does look interesting and i do want to check out drama rama and there's also a film which could be kind of harrowing called what she said about a young woman who is going through the court process and trying to get somebody convicted of raping her. But she's had enough. The legal process is so humiliating, so traumatic, that she's just given up and she doesn't want to pursue it anymore. So she runs away to a remote cabin But her friends all follow her up and try to persuade her, look, you really need to deal with this. You really need to try and get this guy convicted. It's kind of an intervention to get her to pursue her rape case. But, you know, lots of friend stuff happening, lots of relationship stuff happening. Does she actually want to deal with any of this shit? And yeah, that could be interesting, could be harrowing, but I do want to check out what she said. And there's also a small British independent film which has been released onto streaming platforms called Lapwing, which is set in 1555, just after the Egyptian Act is passed, which expels all. Egyptians, aka gypsies, from the country. So, in a remote religious community which is on the verge of collapse, 
the leader of this community agrees to shelter a group of gypsies who are going to be leaving the country, but their ship is not going to be coming for about a month. So, yes, we will hide you for a month, even though this is against the law. But the religious community fractures even more when the mute and subservient sister-in-law of the religious community's leader has an affair with one of these gypsies. So, chaos ensues could be really really interesting kind of like that maxine peak film from earlier this year or last year i think it was fanny lie delivered could be something along those lines so yeah lapwing does look interesting and has been added to the list my highest priorities that are still on the list from previous weeks on the streaming side of things we have the low-budget British sci-fi Between Waves, the American low-budget romance The Way You Look Tonight, the thriller about assimilating Native Americans' Wild Indian. On Amazon Prime, we have the Canadian erotic thriller The Voyeurs, and on Apple Plus TV, Todd Haynes' documentary The Velvet Underground. On Netflix, we still have the kid-friendly spooky film Night Books, the not-so-kid-friendly spooky film Night Teeth, the film version of the musical Tick, Tick, Boom, which will be even more poignant when I eventually get around to see it, given the recent death of Stephen Sondheim, who is apparently a major character in Tick, Tick, Boom. And there's also the Hallmark-esque Christmas movie romance Love Hard. And I do want to check out the Turkish film Grudge about a police detective on the verge of promotion who accidentally kills somebody and then has to investigate it. Or that seems to be the case anyway. But that does look intriguing. So... Lots of stuff to get through. We're in December now, and I still haven't finished my July foreplay, so I've got plenty of stuff to do on that front, plenty of films on my unwatched list, and an inconvenient number of films released in the cinema. It's particularly inconvenient because it's one of those weeks where it doesn't fit together conveniently, so I'm going to have to make several trips to several different places, but anyway... A reminder that there were three yays in this particular episode. Encanto is Disney doing its animated feature best. It's got songs which, although not Lin-Manuel Miranda's best, are very good. But I think there's some genuine darkness and some genuine trauma at the centre of Encanto, which isn't fully appreciated and certainly won't be fully appreciated by a younger audience. But Yeah, I think there's some psychological stuff in Encanto which makes it really, really interesting. Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn is very confrontational, very sexually explicit, very philosophical. It's also in Romanian and arguably a bit too long, but I found it exhilarating and Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn for me was a yay. 
And also Procession, the documentary on Netflix, which is in places a very, very hard watch, but a fascinating examination of working through trauma and unusual methods to get there. Kind of a, a positive version of the act of killing, now I think about it. But yeah, Procession is a very impressive film, and if you think you can cope with it, that is a yay as well. So all that remains for me is to say this has been Yay, Nay or Mare presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Conor Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure. Ah!